Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 238, The Hermit of Hyde Park. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm going to be talking about James Gately, who is better known as the Hermit of Hyde Park. Gately's early years are shrouded in mystery, but he was an Englishman, and he came to Boston after his life took a bad turn. He had trouble making money when he got here, got robbed of his last cent, and decided to give up on humanity and disappear into the wilderness forever. For almost 30 years, he scratched out a meager existence living off the land in the woods of Hyde Park, while his legend grew. By the time he died in 1875, he was so well-known that treasure hunters beat a path to his door to search, unsuccessfully, for the fortune that they believed he had buried in his woods. Now, if this setup sounds familiar, it's because way, way back in episode 19, we had an episode about two Boston hermits, Gately and the Boston Harbor Hermit and Windsor Sherwin. As was pretty typical for our shows in those days, each story got about five minutes of cursory research, and I recently realized that with our better research skills and access to better sources, it was time to revisit the story of the Hyde Park Hermit. That's why I'm grateful for people like Bruce M., the latest listener to support the show on PayPal. This episode is a perfect example of how our listeners' support makes a difference. When we know we can count on our Patreon sponsors to give $2, $5, or even $10 a month, that consistency allows us to maintain subscriptions to research databases. In this case, we could get access to the Globe Archives to get a much more complete picture of the hermit's life than we could way back in March of 2017. Along with access to better sources, our supporters also allow us to pay for web hosting and security, podcast media hosting, and online audio processing tools to clean up the way the show sounds. To everyone who chips in to help me make Hub History, thank you. If you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And thanks again to all our new and existing sponsors. Now it's time for this week's main topic. On Wednesday, February 3rd, 1875, the Boston Globe carried a simple notice for a death the day before. Died in Hyde Park, second instant, of congestion of the lungs, James Gately, known as the Hermit, 64 years. Gately lived alone in a tiny hut deep in the forest, scratching out a meager existence as a hunter. So it may have come as a surprise when another story in the same edition of the Globe said that after the hermit died, when his body was taken away to be prepared for burial, a small fortune was found sewn into the linings of his rustic clothing. Quote, The body was taken in charge by the town authorities. The rags that covered his body being searched, sewed up in different parts, were found in greenbacks, scrip, and coppers, the sum of $1,031.92. This money was deposited in the Hyde Park Savings Bank until called for by the heirs, if he has any. It's likely that all the contemporaneous news reports contain inaccuracies and exaggerations, but the profile of the Hermit Gately published in the Globe on December 13, 1880, seems the most likely to be accurate. It was published five years after Gately's death after his tiny estate had been settled and the reporter could use the probate record and Dedham's Registry of Deeds for research. 
That profile describes how the rumors that sprung up around the hermit's death seemed to be a continuation of the mystique that surrounded him in life. So interesting were the legends weaved around him by the would-be explorers of his secret that pamphlets purporting to be a history of his life were printed and eagerly sought for. But the old man would simply laugh, he was a hearty laugher, and say they thought they knew it all. The story got around that the hermit was making lots of money. He was never seen in the village and was never known to spend any money, and so people thought he must have laid up quite a fortune. If the old man had sewn that much cash into the linings of his clothing, how much might he have buried in the woods around his hut? The December 13, 1880 profile in the Globe describes how James Gately's death kicked off a treasure hunt in his once secluded forest. When the news of his death was chronicled, people came and carried off portions of the hut as relics, and in some cases, stole everything of value they could get. As many people believed that the old man had acquired a great deal of money, they dug the ground all over, and some credulous ones still persist in it, in the hopes of unearthing his wealth. Who was this aging man who had been known to generations simply as the hermit? He was an Englishman who had moved to Boston as a young man. Rumors swirled that he was the sole heir to an enormous fortune, who'd been educated at Oxford, or maybe it was Eton. One version of this story ran in the initial Globe report about his death on February 3rd, 1875. Gately was a native of Cheshire, England, and was the eldest of a family of six. His father was the owner of a vast tract of land in Cheshire, and his wealth was fabulous. He is still living, so far as known. At an early age, James Gately showed a strong taste for ornithology, and became a careful and proficient student, receiving a liberal education. But his mind appeared to have been dimmed from some cause. At one time, he was the head of a prosperous school. A couple weeks later, a follow-up story on February 15th built on Gately's reputation as an ornithologist to say that he was a professional collector, driven into the forest after he was unlucky in love. Mr. Samuel Nalden of Newark, New Jersey, who lately visited the town and who was a friend and youth of James Gately, the late hermit, says that Gately was sent to this country as a special agent of the British Museum to collect and forward rare specimens of birds, reptiles, etc., that the deceased was of a peculiarly sensitive nature, was married when 25 years old to a wealthy young lady who died within two years thereafter, and that his family is wealthy and moves in the best society in England. The better-researched profile that ran in December of 1880 indicated that he was a pretty typical kid, enjoying sports and outdoor hobbies. He was a hunter and showed particular skill at taxidermy, stuffing and preserving the many creatures found on his father's country estate. James Gately was born in England in 1810, of wealthy parents. From early youth, James was fond of collecting toads, snakes, birds, and other small animals and preserving them by taxidermy. So large was his collection that his mother gave him a room in the house in which he could gratify his tastes without interference. He was also fond of gunning, and took all the opportunities for that sport that his father's extensive estate afforded. Educated at Oxford College, though possessed of no vicious habits, he was one of the boys, always ready for any sport that college youths are so fond of indulging. 
One version of Gately's origin story says that he came to America after his wife died young and left him brokenhearted. Another version says that it wasn't a wife, but rather a child, that drove Gately to leave his homeland. The December 13, 1880 Globe profile describes what Gately was so eager to leave behind. Love or passion held him captive for a time, for he became enamored of a girl below his position in society, and the result was a son, who is still living and now 30 years of age. There being impediments to the marriage, he sailed for Australia, but returned a year later. That little difficulty being still unsettled, he set sail for this country, and his peculiar method of life commenced shortly after reaching Boston, with but little money in his pocket. Upon arriving in the hub, Gately lived the life of an intellectual, at least briefly. As the 1880 profile continues, his background as a wealthy heir and landowner hadn't actually done much to prepare him for making a living in the real world and his studies in Boston were soon cut short. For a time, he devoted himself to study, poured over the books in the libraries, and took no heed of the future. One day, he awoke to the fact that his money was running very low, and that he must do something to earn his living. He tried to put his knowledge to a practical turn. He hired a room in Roxbury and began making cages and stuffing birds. He kept at it for a year or maybe more, but he could hardly get enough for his work to keep body and soul together. It was a struggle against starvation, but he was too proud to write home for money. He had just 40 gold dollars in his possession. He had guarded them religiously against a rainy day and made up his mind to spend them only when he was driven to it by the direst necessity. But Gailey's heart broke one day. He'd been at work for a long time on a beautiful birdcage and had put in many extra hours on it. His work was not appreciated, and only a small sum was offered him for it. One morning, he started to walk to Charlestown, trusting to find better luck over there. When near the bridge, hot and tired, he entered a saloon for a glass of beer. When he felt for his money to pay for it, he found none. He'd been robbed of his last cent and was kicked into the street like a dog, although someone in the barroom had relieved him of his entire fortune. Disheartened and downcast, he disposed of his cage for a dollar or two, walked back to Roxbury, shouldered his gun and struck out for the woods, swearing that he would lead the life of a recluse ever after. At a time when Manifest Destiny was at its peak and Americans were streaming into Texas, Oregon, and other recent U.S. claims, Gately decided to strike out for the vast wilderness of the West. The Western wilderness in this case being the forested areas along the line between what was then Dorchester and West Roxbury, but was later organized into the town of Hyde Park. Our profile in the December 13, 1880 edition of The Globe describes how he began making his way in the woods. Be it remembered that he was by nature a keen student, and delighted in perusing scientific and ornithological works. In those days, there was a thick forest from Roxbury, way out to Hyde Park, and for miles beyond. Today it's all different, for villages and towns have broken up the forest, and houses have taken the places of the pines and oaks. Gately began a roving life. He lived on what he shot. He slept anywhere and all summer long had no roof over his head. When the sharp winds of fall began to blow, he began to look around for some shelter. 
In about 1847, Gately gave up wandering and decided to settle down. He decided to make his home in one of the most idyllic spots in the forest of what's now Hyde Park, an area known as the Pine Garden. The 1904 Hyde Park Historical Record notes, Fifty years ago, where Huntington Avenue now is, there was a private way leading to Clarendon Hills. James Gately, the hermit, prior to his removal from Grew's Woods, lived beside Pine Garden Rock, not far from the spring issuing therefrom. The Pine Garden was a large tract of forest between Huntington Avenue and Back Street, today's Wood Avenue. The woods ran unbroken from the West Roxbury town line in the north to the Neponset River in the south. Its defining feature was a large rock outcropping that was at one time called Pine Garden Rock, then Sally's Rock, and is known today as Crane's Ledge. An advocacy group that's trying to stop a housing development in one of the few remaining tracts that's not built over describes the area as a 24-acre forest, known locally as Crane Ledge Woods and designated as an urban wild, has been inaccessible and mostly unknown to the surrounding neighborhoods of southwest Boston, Hyde Park, Roslindale, and Mattapan. From a beautiful green space of crucial wildlife habitats, shady forest, flower-filled meadows, rocky alcoves, and vernal pools, the proposed project would turn Crane Ledge Woods into an immense urban heat island of impervious asphalt and concrete. Crane Ledge Woods gets its name from Crane Ledge, a rock cliff offering a stunning view, looking southwest across Hyde Park and the Stony Brook Valley far below. The view across the valley gives visitors a rare sense of Hyde Park as it existed more than a century ago, when Crane Ledge was a site for weekend picnics, known as Pine Garden. For a description of what the Pine Garden was like in the 19th century, we turn to a note by Horace Sumner in the 1912 Hyde Park Historical Record. Near the northern border of Hyde Park is a hilly tract of land about the size of Boston Common. Fifty or more years ago, this land was covered with a beautiful growth of pines and cedars, and owing to its many attractions, was known as Pine Garden. Among these attractions were the spring, the rock, and the beautiful dell or ravine below the spring. The place was the resort of many picnics. In the traditional history of Dorchester, we find that this was a part of the town's common lands and was used as a sheep pasture, the town hiring a shepherd to tend the flock. According to this tradition, he had a stone hut on one of the peaks, since known as Shepherd's Tent. From here, he had a fine view of the surrounding country. As the passage continues, Sumner explains how our hermit Gately is responsible for renaming the rock at the Pine Garden. The top of Pine Garden Rock is today widely known as Sally's Rock, a spite name given to it by the Hermit Gately and taken up by the people in ignorance of any other. This rock or ledge is about 100 feet in total height, beginning with a precipice on its southern end and extending about a quarter of a mile to the north, where it gradually tapers off to the level of the ground. Its top is covered with boulders, and the western side is a vertical wall of some 65 or more feet. The extensive view from the top of the rock covers most of Hyde Park and Dedham, and includes Big Blue Hill and some of the hills in Roxbury. To appreciate the grandeur of the rock, it must be approached from the sand plain below. 
the path and brooklet descended through a beautiful dell or ravine under great trees that the sun scarcely ever penetrated. The descent was almost too steep for safety to the sand plain about 100 feet below. On the right was an irregular vertical wall of rock, and the deep wood on the left, an ideal place to recall stories of Indians and bears. Today, the best approach is not from a sandy plain, but from the parking lot behind the Walgreens in the first big plaza along American Legion Highway. But the Rocky Crag is still a great place to recall stories of times gone by, perhaps starting with the story of the Hermit Gately. The top still yields views for miles, but the vista consists of less wooded hills and more houses and stores, and along the Neponset Valley, a series of mostly abandoned factories. The shepherds and picnickers who frequented the Pine Garden were far from the first Americans to see the potential of Sally's Rock. A 1981 archaeological survey of the site found evidence of an ancient Native American quarry site. One natural talus slope with prehistoric materials was located and surface collected. We found considerable debitage and signs of prehistoric quarrying at the white felsite outcroppings. Among our recoveries here was a full-grooved axe, made of hornfilized brain tree slate and presumably used in quarrying. We also found a small number of exotic flakes of Blue Hills aporiolite and a red-banded aporiolite from another quarry about a mile from Sally's Rock. From a survey of collections, it's apparent that this material was popular during the Middle Archaic, and is especially common for tools of the Neville complex. Neville points, associated U-based preforms, choppers, scrapers, and even a chipped ulu made of sally rock felsite were recorded. Even during Gately's era, the Pine Garden wasn't as remote as it first appeared. At the southern end of the forest was the Tileston and Hollingsworth paper mill, located about where the price rate is on River Street today. Jeffrey Lindenthal described the mill in a paper published in the New England Journal of Public Policy in 1991. In 1801, two practical papermakers, Edmund Tileston and Mark Hollingsworth, established a mill on the Neponset River in Mattapan, the first of many mills the partners would own. The site of the Tileston and Hollingsworth mill was not far from a spot in Dorchester where the town, with an interest in collecting taxes on the property, had granted land to a Milton papermaker to establish a mill in 1773. The Tileston and Hollingsworth Company leased this mill in 1806 and purchased the facility 30 years later. The mill was destroyed by fire in 1837, and the partners built a new facility adjacent to the old site and chose to remove their Mattapan operations to the new location as well. This is the site of the Hyde Park Mill on the Deposit River, its origination commonly traced to 1801. In the shadow of Pine Garden Rock, Later known as Sally's Rock, James Gately built a rude hut, as described in the 1880 profile I've been quoting from. Then he continued to scratch out barely enough of a living to go on, well, living. Everybody around Hyde Park knows where Sally's Rock is. It is a great perpendicular boulder near the station on the Boston and Providence Railroad now known as Clarendon Hills. Against this rock, Gately built a hut, he got three or four boards from somewhere and placed them up in a slanting position against the rock. Over the top, he threw brush, and that was his dwelling for years and years. Every rain wet him through, 
the snow would sift into his only room, and when the sun melted it, the water trickled down upon him. It's a wonder he didn't die, but he didn't. He got used to this life and hardened under it. For days together, he did not have a dry stitch of clothing on, and what there was of it was always in rags. It was a hard life that he led. He relied on his rifle for food, and what little money he had was obtained from selling skins and stuffed birds. Once he went for five days without food. It was in winter, and he was so weak that he could hardly crawl. He hadn't a cent of money. He was too proud to beg, and even if he had wanted to, he didn't have the strength to crawl away from his hut for more than a few feet. Only two charges of powder and shot remained. He had almost made up his mind to blow his brains out with one of them, when, looking out the entrance to his hut, he saw a mink. With trembling hands, he raised his gun and fired. It was a moment of suspense, but when the smoke cleared away, Gailey saw that his aim had been true. He seized the animal, tore off the skin, and made a substantial but most unsavory meal. He walked to Boston and sold the skin, bought powder, and so got another start in the world. At another time, when Gately was on the verge of committing suicide, he was snowbound. A tremendous storm set in and raged with great fury for days. The entrance to his hut, which was only two or three feet high, was soon blocked. Finally, a mass of snow fell from the overhanging rock and buried him ten feet deep. It was hard work to dig out. Once or twice, he was almost ready to give up, but after two days of work, he managed to tunnel out. The snow had frozen, was almost like ice. In the summertime, Gately made pets of snakes and lizards and rats. It would crawl over him, but it never disturbed him, and he in turn never troubled them. Finally, people began to discover the whereabouts of the recluse. He was known as the Crazy Hermit, and a few people interested themselves in him. They would give him small jobs, and at one time he made considerable money as a dog trainer. He had one dog which he trained for himself, and which lived for 15 years with him before death stretched him out cold and stiff. The female sex were afraid of him, as he always treated them gruffly, so it became an accepted theory that disappointment in love was the origin of his freak. Despite his sometimes desperate existence in the Pine Garden, the hermit was not as solitary as he might think, or as he might have wished. An article in the Fitchburg Sentinel of August 21st, 1874, which was reprinted from the Boston Advertiser, describes the many visitors that Gately received. On arriving at Boston, the hermit plunged into the forest and built himself a hut under an overhanging ledge in the Pine Garden Woods. Here he supported himself on game, which was then abundant, and devoted much time to the study of ornithology. This strange man evidently has some property in England for he has several times received remittances of money through the British consul, with presents of valuable dogs from the same source. Many ornithologists have visited Mr. Gately, and it's affirmed that in various works upon the subject, his views have been frequently entertained. It's fun to picture a proper English gentleman from the consulate tramping through the brush in Hyde Park with a stack of cash or an English wolfhound in tow or an ornithologist fresh from college stumbling through the forest with sketches and study skins for Gately to identify. 
There's even a note on the Audubon Society website saying that Gately was the only person in history known to have collected the nest of a merlin in the state of Massachusetts. Before long, the paper mill along the Neponset wasn't Gately's only neighbor. Large villages sprung up around the mills at today's Reedville and Mattapan Square, and houses were rapidly filling in between them. As the Boston Advertiser story continues, Finally, the advances of civilization led him to seek a more secluded spot. He has seen the town grow up like magic, and houses penetrate his very woods. But still he remains. After about eight years at the Pine Garden, the 1880 profile describes how the hermit Gately got a new start in a less populated corner of Hyde Park. Gately lived in that hut for many years, and corresponded with his mother, his letters being addressed to the Dorchester Post Office. The railroads and other works of civilization were encroaching upon him. Game began to get scarce, and so he decided to move on. He purchased from one Williams an acre of land at Muddy Pond Woods in 1855, paying $100 therefore. It's recently been sold to Mrs. Twitchell for less than half of that sum. Here he built the hut he lived in for 20 years, and placed a stone wall around it. In conversing with intimate friends about his relations abroad, he expressed himself as intending to return to his native land to die. The hut he lived in was a curiosity. He had a front room which was perhaps 10 feet square. The sides were lined with cases of stuffed birds and animals. Back of this was a little room where he worked and slept. There was hardly space enough in it for himself and dog to lie down at the same time, but it suited his purposes. The more secluded spot that Gately finally found to build his second and more weatherproof hut was probably near the 13th tee on the George Wright Golf Course, just off of West Street along the border between Hyde Park and Roslindale. We can locate this with some confidence, because an 1872 map of the recently incorporated town of Hyde Park carefully locates a house marked only as Hermitage, just west of West Street. Gately's cabin was surrounded by hundreds of acres of forest. It may have looked like an unspoiled wilderness, but the forest surrounding Gately's modest hut was actually a rich man's weekend playground. In a letter to a friend, Henry Sturgis Grew describes a trip he took with his family in the summer of 1845. A holiday excursion carried my wife, children, and myself to Dorchester for the day. We stopped in the woods about a half a mile from where I now reside, and, strolling about, unexpectedly I came to a point where I was much pleased with the view of the blue hills in the valley between. I saw a farmhouse and went to it and inquired if it was for sale. The result was a purchase of several acres of land. Grew had gone to work in the dry goods store of James Reed after dropping out of prep school at about 16 years old. To Henry Grew's benefit, Reed went on to start the enormous and successful textile mills in the neighborhood in Hyde Park that's now called Reedville. And in his early 20s, Henry Grew became Reed's partner. By the time he bought the farmhouse with a beautiful view in 1845, he was not yet 40 years old, but already on the road to retirement. In an 1872 speech to the officers of Hyde Park, the independent town that Grew had helped to form from pieces of Milton, Dedham, and Dorchester in 1868, 
He described the property where he had been puttering around and playing farmer for about a quarter century at that point. Having purchased a few acres of land in the summer of 1846, I commenced building a house and moved to this place, then a part of Dorchester, on the first day of May 1847. At that time, most of this territory was occupied by farmers. There were on River Street, the old highway between Dorchester and Dedham, within a range of a mile or a mile and a half, about ten houses, most of them small and occupied by farmers, with two exceptions, one a blacksmith and one a wheelwright, with a population not exceeding fifty persons. West of my house was an unbroken range of forest trees. On the northerly side in West Roxbury, there were three farms. My nearest visiting neighbor was two and a half or three miles distant. I was almost literally surrounded by woods, and my friends in Boston were much surprised by my going to such a wild and lonely place. Grew wasn't just sitting on his hands. He continued to add additional land onto his extensive holdings, as described in the 1891 Hyde Park Historical Record. Mr. Grew designates his sightly residence as Woodlands, and from the hillside upon which it stands is a charming view of Hyde Park nestling in the valley of the Neponset and covering the westerly slope of Fairmount, and of Milton with its famous Blue Hills. From time to time he has added to his extensive domain, until it now includes nearly all of the several hundred acres known as Grew's Woods. This land constitutes a very beautiful natural park, and has been thrown open by its owner for use by the public he having, at his own expense, repaired the roads leading through it and bridged the streams. As Henry Grew's property grew to encompass about 800 acres, it also grew to surround James Gately's cabin on its acre of land. Since he came to Hyde Park to enjoy his own solitary and pastoral existence, you have to imagine that Grew was pretty amused by his new neighbor. And despite his seclusion, Gately was anything but lonely. As the story of the hermit spread, the world beat a path to his door, as noted in the December 13, 1880 Globe profile. He made a charge of 10 cents for admission to his museum, and it was well worth the sum to see his collection. When he built his hut here, he was getting up in the world. He planted corn and beans and shot birds and rabbits. In the latter part of his life, game got scarce, for the village, which started with a cluster of houses, grew rapidly, until now Hyde Park is one of the most thriving towns in the state. Of course, as the town sprang up, the birds were driven away. But the old man did quite a thriving business in the way of stuffing birds. And among the papers of his estate examined by a Globe reporter are a large number of letters sent by persons residing in the states from Maine to California soliciting information on the care of sick birds or other animals, also on taxidermy, or enclosing tenders of specimens of reptiles. Gately's self-imposed seclusion came to an end on a cold winter's day in 1875. On February 3rd of that year, the Globe reported on a grim discovery in Grew's Woods. Mr. William Chickering and William Fisher of Dedham were enjoying a sleigh ride yesterday in the environs of Hyde Park. And, being old friends of James Gately, the famous hermit of Hyde Park, went to pay him a visit at his hut in Grew's Woods. Upon going to the door, they found it locked. 
Peeping through the window, they saw the hermit lying curled up behind the small stove he used. Attracting his attention, they asked him if he was sick, to which he responded by an affirmative nod. They asked him if they would break open the door and send for a doctor. He responded negatively, but they thought it best to send for a physician, and Dr. Edwards was called, and the door broken open. A sickening spectacle presented itself to the visitors. Snow had leaked through the roof. Every article was completely frozen. There was no fire in the stove, nor had there been apparently for some time, and the hermit himself was in an emaciated and filthy condition. The room was about five feet square, and neglect was everywhere apparent. The doctor, after an examination of Mr. Gately, saw that he was past all human aid, but did all that he could to alleviate his suffering by administering restoratives. The hermit rallied a little, and as he was an Episcopalian, the Reverend Dr. Van Cleek, rector of Christ Church, was sent for, and spoke consoling words to the dying man, but he apparently did not realize his situation. He said that he had been physically prostrated for five days from a severe cold, and that during that time he had been unable to assist himself, nor had anyone come to his aid. He had not even had a drink of water. If Gately had neglected his own needs as his condition suddenly declined, his little menagerie in the cabin had been similarly neglected, as noted in our 1880 profile. It was a remarkable death scene. There, surrounded by stuffed birds and reptiles, living owls, eagles, and other birds, starving for lack of food and water for some days, rendering the air obnoxious by their filth and expressing their sufferings by cries of distress. Gately had gotten himself out of similar jams in the past, either by clawing his way out of the snowbanks that buried his hut, or using his last charge of powder to shoot a mink that he could both eat and sell for more powder. This time, however, it would not be the case. Perhaps this illness was worse than any he had experienced before. Perhaps it was an effect of his advancing age. Or perhaps he simply couldn't stand having so much company in the cabin he had built to escape from the world. But the February 3rd notice in the Boston Globe continues, The town officials having been notified in the meantime, Mr. Twitchell, overseer of the poor, arrived upon the scene. It was suggested to the hermit that the hut be cleaned up, as some ladies would call and take care of him. But he strongly objected and he gradually sank until about 3.30 p.m. when he died, and his inanimate body was left surrounded by the remains of birds, reptiles, and animals, by stuffing which he had earned a living. The hermit James Gately's not-so-solitary death kicked off the treasure hunt I opened the episode with, and it also kicked off a surprisingly well-attended funeral. Two days after the hermit passed away in his hut, his funeral was held at Christ Church in Hyde Park the big stone church on River Street, right in Cleary Square. The next day, the Boston Globe noted, Funeral services over the remains of James Gately, known as the Hermit, were held yesterday forenoon in Christ Church, the Reverend Dr. Van Cleek officiating. The edifice was filled, there not being a vacant seat. The body, enclosed in an elegant casket adorned with flowers, was dressed in a suit of black cloth and the features were very natural. After the Episcopal burial service, the remains were taken to Dedham Cemetery and placed in the receiving tomb to await the order of his relatives in England, 
who have been notified by the British consul. The suit he was buried in was one of the last remaining possessions that he had brought over from the old country, as noted in the 1880 Boston Globe profile. Though the old man had lived alone, there were more sincere mourners around that filthy mess of rags upon which he expired than at the funerals of many wealthy dead. Through all of his pilgrimage, he had clung to the oaken chest which he had brought with him to this country. And from its depths, the coat he wore when he graduated from Oxford College was taken and placed around his form. Gately's remains were interred at the Old Village Cemetery just outside Dedham Square. At the time, it was the only cemetery in the town of Dedham. And before Hyde Park was incorporated, it was customary to bury the dead of West Dorchester in the Dedham Burying Ground. Even men who died while training to serve in the Civil War at Camp Meigs were buried there. And apparently after the incorporation of Hyde Park, some residents of the new town were still buried in their old cemetery. A few months later, however, a new cemetery opened in Dedham, not too far down Washington Street from the remains of Gately's cabin. On August 1, 1875, the Boston Globe reported that a collection had been taken up to move the hermit's remains into the new cemetery. James Gately, the hermit of Hyde Park, having left an estate valued at $1,200, and his body having laid in a neglected, unmarked spot in the Dedham Cemetery, five residents of that town subscribed the money to purchase a lot in the new cemetery, and the body was moved to the lot today. J.M. Twitchell, the administrator of the Gately estate, will erect a suitable memorial over the hermit's resting place, deducting the costs from the funds in his possession, which the heirs in England are quarreling about. The December 13, 1880 Globe profile describes his new resting place and the headstone that's as simple in death as Gately was in life. In a plat of ground in Brookdale Cemetery in Dedham lies all the remains of James Gately, a rough, unhewn block of stone weighing about three tons, with the single inscription, Hermit, covering the grave. There it lies, typical of his life here, rough, and to the visitor divulging no clue to the identity of the body underneath, or his perhaps unparalleled struggle for existence. Peace to his ashes. Despite the optimism of the treasure hunters who dug up his woods, Gately only seemed to have one meaningful asset. His acre of land didn't fetch much, and rumors about the estate he was entitled to back in England didn't come to anything. In the end, his taxidermy collection was the only thing he owned that was worth any money. Three days after his death, the Globe reported, Gately's large and valuable collection of stuffed birds, animals, and general effects have been placed in the town hall building for safekeeping. After five months, the Globe was able to update the story with the appraised value of the collection, writing, By the inventory of the estate of James Gately the Hermit, there are $933.16 in the bank. His collections of curiosities are valued at $691.75, and his land at $200. And two more months after that, on September 2, 1875, an article in the Boston Globe stated, Petition granted of John M. Twitchell, Special Administrator of the Estate of James Gately of Hyde Park, for leave to sell stuffed birds and beasts of the estate. Although it sounds like the collection was completely dispersed, that's not quite the case. 
After our original episode about the Hermit Gately, listener and fiscal supporter of the show Jim Kay realized that he had seen some of Gately's original taxidermy at the library while growing up in Hyde Park. Jim wrote to the Hyde Park branch of the library on our behalf, asking whether the glass case of taxidermy was still on public display in the children's room. And one of the librarians responded, We do have the owl display that hung for many years in the children's room in a large wooden case with a glass front. This display was on top of a bookcase when the Menino wing opened, but we moved it for safety's sake into Weld Hall. It is no longer on display until we can find a safe way to secure it to a wall or a piece of furniture. I was lucky enough to get a private viewing of the birds in the storage room where they're being kept while the library works out a safer means of displaying them. I'll include a couple of pictures of Gately's handiwork in this week's show notes. There are a few places where you can still walk in the hermit's footsteps. From Henry Grew's original 800 or so acres, about 615 acres are preserved as the Stony Brook Reservation, while an additional 135 acres were transformed into the George Wright Public Golf Course, with the help of about 30 tons of dynamite. When you play around at the George Wright, you're passing over the ground where James Gately died, though the landscape has since been totally transformed. If you're not a golf player, you can go for a walk in Stony Brook Reservation. For a more representative view of Gately's landscape, follow the paved east boundary path that runs roughly parallel to the boundary with the George Wright Golf Course. You can also still see the view from Pine Garden Rock or Sally's Rock or Crane's Ledge, if you're willing to bend the rules a bit. To learn more about the Hermit of Hyde Park and how to walk in his footsteps, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 238. I'll have a photo of James Gately posing in front of his second cabin, an engraving of the hermit at work on his taxidermy, and an 1850 map and 1860s photo of Henry Grew's estate in Hyde Park. Plus, I'll include a link to the 1872 map of Hyde Park that clearly marks the location of Gately's Hermitage. To read more, look for links to the initial coverage of James Gately's death in the February 3, 1875 edition of The Globe, follow-up coverage in the weeks and months that followed, as well as the better-researched profile that ran in The Globe on December 13, 1880. I'll also link to the Hyde Park Historical Record of 1891, 1904, and 1912 for articles that flesh out the details of the hermit's life, as well as the 1981 story in the Bulletin of the Massachusetts Archaeological Society about an ancient quarry site at Sally's Rock. If you want to explore the hermit's first refuge at Crane's Ledge, look for a post from Universal Hub about exploring the Lost Road and the Towers of Doom. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and many more apps. You can stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. Or you can listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. 
Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey, Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts remains the most popular podcast app. If that's how you listen, consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line. I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. (laughs) 